Thank you. Well, first of all, let me just say it is a privilege to be here with you this morning. It's always a privilege to be able to open God's word and to learn from it and to proclaim it. But thank you, first of all, for the invite. I I was actually due to come down last year and unfortunately had to cancel due to some family circumstances. So I'm glad that I've made it, even if it's about eight months too late. Um, But it's a privilege to come to such a welcoming church. I have loved our time of worship to begin with. It's really good to be able to glorify the Lord together with other Christians. And um, it's one of, the, one of the joys of the Christian faith. In a moment, we're going to read today's passage, which is Matthew chapter 19 and verses 1 through 12. Um, on that point of God's glory, it is good to be able to glorify God, isn't it? But God's glory is a serious issue in the church. It, it should be our priority as those who would claim to be his people. And the passage we are about to read is a passage in which Jesus tackles a threat to God's glory. And we'll learn a little bit more about that in just a moment. So we'll read the passage together and just a few opening thoughts. Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. To the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And there are those words that we hear in so many weddings, aren't they? Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For one who cannot accept this, sorry, for one who can accept this should accept it. Now, having read that passage, there are already some people who are a little bit on the edge of their seat. Because this passage tackles some issues that are right at the heart of being a human being and at the heart of our desires and our wants and our needs. There are people in this building who are already going, oh no, it's a sermon about divorce. Or it's a sermon about how about marriage. But I'm single, so what relevance does that have to me? There are people who have, read, who have just heard this passage and thought, I've grown up in a home where divorce happened and it was horrible. Or I've grown up in a home 
that was toxic. And there wasn't divorce, but actually the marriage that I saw was not good. Already we have this whole range of views in a group of people this size. I've got my views. Just from the outset, I've been married like eight, nine months, so I'm not going to be giving any tips. Um, I don't think I will be able to for at least 10 years, probably 20. Ruth sort of, I would imagine, will be saying 20 rather than 10. Um, but So I'm not going to be giving any advice, but I've got my own preconceived ideas about this as well. This passage, on the face of it, it comes across as quite legalistic, comes across as a matter, matter of tackling the issue of divorce, when actually this passage is about something far greater. I mentioned God's glory, and I'll mention it again. As we'll open in a moment, God's glory is tied up with the symbol of marriage. And we're going to go into that. But before we do, I want to pray again. Because this is an area where we need wisdom. We need open hearts as well. We read in verse 8 that Jesus talked about how divorce was allowed in the Old Testament because of hardened hearts. And hardened hearts are just as likely to occur in this day and age as they were back then. So let's just pray again. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that this account of Jesus discussing marriage and divorce and singleness exists for our benefit. And Father, we ask very simply that your Holy Spirit would give your wisdom to each one of us. Give it to me, Lord, as I expound this, and also to me as I listen to this, and to the rest of those here. Help us to listen with open hearts and open minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we go any further, let's just launch into where, where, where we're at in the story. You know, what, it, what, what stage are we at? If we read the first three verses of Matthew 19, we read that Jesus has finished saying some things. And very easily we jump over that. But let's just take a moment to think, actually, what has Jesus just finished saying? Well, actually, in the previous chapter, we have a couple of parables about Jesus's, uh, first of all, desire to save the lost. We have the, the parable of the wandering sheep or the lost sheep. And we have another parable of the unmerciful servant, a picture of someone who is spurning God's grace. We also see a debate between the disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The disciples, as we may see in a moment, regularly throughout this gospel, which was written by a disciple, put their foot right in it. Um, but those are these things that he's just said. But he says these things and he leaves Galilee, the place where he's been preaching and teaching and healing. And it says he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And the path he's taking, we must realize, is that he is gradually, step by step, moving closer to the cross. The cross throughout Matthew's gospel is that thing that overshadows everything before it, that everything Jesus does is on the way to the cross. Everything Jesus does is a way of explaining the cross. Everything that Jesus does is a way of modeling to humanity the relationship that they currently have with God and the relationship that they need to have with God. 
It's modeling to humanity who God actually is. Everything up until this point points in that direction, and our passage is no different. So what does Jesus do? In verse 2, we see Jesus' heart. You see, if we were to simply read the passage that was coming after this, we might see Jesus simply as a legalist. Maybe a rabbi who just taught, who concerned himself with matters of scripture and legalism, but didn't really care about people. And it's so important that we see that in verse 2, before he talks about all of this, that our God is about broken people and fixing them. And we're told that it isn't just a few people. Large crowds follow him and he heals them. Why? Because he's a good God. Because he's a merciful God. Because he's a gracious and loving God. Because he is a God who wants to take broken humanity and fix us. The sin in our lives has resulted in an imperfect world. And Jesus, wherever he went, set about fixing it, both spiritually and physically. So this is our God that's talking. Our God is not a legalist. He is not obsessed with legality. He is obsessed with what's right. He's obsessed with justice and goodness and grace. And that's how we have to see this. But we see human nature right on show here. Because Jesus is there healing the sick. And there's some people, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. They were at times a political party, a social movement. They were all about following the law of Moses to the letter. They come up to him and go, excuse me, I know you're healing that person, but I have an issue that I want to discuss with you. Can you imagine that? Jesus is in the middle of doing all this good stuff, but they have to pick up on the fact that actually they have a particular legal issue to discuss with him. And so often we, we miss what God is doing because we get stuck on what we should think about a particular aspect. But as it is, this is an important aspect. And Jesus gives them the time of day. But we also read that actually this is going to be a test. We read, in, as verse 3 continues, some Pharisees came to test him. So they're not actually coming, and we should see this from the outset, they're not actually coming with the desire to, go, to find out what Jesus actually has to teach them. What they're coming to do is they are coming to test him and to see if he fits their mould of a teacher, of a godly man, of a messiah. Because their assumption is, because of their great learning, that Jesus should agree with them. And so often, we in our lives can test God against our model, can't we? We can test God and we can say, well, I'm a pretty good person. God should agree with the way in which I see this issue, surely. And this was the approach that the Pharisees took. And they decide to question him and test him on a matter of the, day, of the day. It was a matter that was discussed a lot. Um, and it was the matter of divorce. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And at this point, I'm going to hit pause. Because I've been given this whole passage to speak on. I've been given verses 1 through 12. And at this point, 
we launch into a big discussion about marriage, divorce, what marriage is and what God's heart for marriage is. And there's a danger, and I picked this up after I'd written this three times and still wasn't happy, that I miss a huge gem, a huge gift of God's grace that is in this passage by getting hooked up on the next few verses. So I know that when we expound a passage, we normally start at the start and we finish at the finish, but I'm not going to. We're going to start at the finish. If you'll permit me to just summarize that a heated debate ensues in which the Pharisees say that surely divorce can be allowed if a man is displeased with his wife. And Jesus says, well, hang on. No, the only, op- the, the only reason for this divorce should be immorality. And they, the disciples are, are stood there looking on at this debate. And Jesus is, uh, is, is listening to the Pharisees and he's responding. And I can't imagine that, that, he, that he came across in, in a way that was particularly um, uh, understanding of their question. Jesus was, was not willing to allow foolishness to prosper. And this is what they were doing. But the disciples are looking on and they see this engagement and they realize that marriage is hard. If you're married, you probably know that. I'm not, and I don't say anything that would be rude about my wife, but marriage is hard. Isn't it? It is a struggle at times that marriage and particularly Christian marriage is something that needs to be strived for, worked at. That it is not something that can be committed too lightly. And the disciples are realizing that perhaps their view of marriage, based on the Pharisees teaching that they'd grown up with, is not what God wants. And so the Pharisees, it would appear, leave, probably quite grumpy. And the disciples say to Jesus, Well, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, surely it's better not to marry. And once again, the disciples put their foot right in it. Because at this point, Jesus replies, well, not everyone can accept this word, but yes, you're right. That for some people, celibacy and singleness are the godly thing. And at which point, this is probably one of those moments where they're sort of half serious question massively backfires on them and Jesus starts to teach about singleness and it's worth mentioning at the at the outset that actually Jesus talks about eunuchs and at the time there was a there was a history uh, of some people perhaps people who uh, were courtiers who were focused on their jobs in some ancient cultures they would be castrated and at that point, every man in the, womb, in the room has just gone, but they would, because it would allow them to focus on their job. That's what a eunuch was, physically. Now, I once heard this passage preached on, and nobody explained that. And somebody, one of my friends came down and went, I didn't understand the word he was saying. I didn't know what a eunuch was. So we'll leave it there. We don't need to say anymore that that's what it was. But Jesus said there are people who have been born that way, that... that they have been born with the inability to engage in the intimacy of marriage. But there are some who have been made that way by the will of man, and they would have encountered in their daily life people who were eunuchs, who had been 
born into perhaps a tradition where they were going to go and do a certain job and society had said, well, you guys, you can focus on that job and we're going to help you. But Jesus talks about a third type. And it says there are those who choose to live like it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, I would not be doing this passage justice if I didn't take a moment to think about singleness. You see, this passage is not just about divorce. It's not just about marriage. It's about the fact that God offers a radical new thing called singleness. And you might be going, why is he going on about that? I don't want to be single. But you know what? Sometimes the Bible says that you do not need to be married. That if it's permanently or for a time in your life, singleness can be a gift from God to be used for his glory. And this, this is massively countercultural, isn't it? Even when we are growing up, we're told that a relationship is everything. If I look at my class of year sixes back in Broadcliffe, where I teach, they're all, loads of them, they are obsessed with boyfriends and girlfriends. Perhaps you were when you were at primary school. And, you know, the relationship average time is somewhere between four and four and a half days long before they decide that, that actually it's Easter and they think their other friend could buy them a better Easter egg. You laugh, but they do that. Um, and society is constantly telling us that we need to be in a relationship, that we need to be married. And society was telling them the same thing. You know, you can imagine the disciples, they would have all grown up with their grandparents going, oh, I'd love some grandkids one day, or great-grandkids one day. Anyone, anyone ever heard that one? Yeah, and there's the pressure, isn't there? And often it's good pressure, because marriage is good. But Jesus says, actually, it's not easy for you to take, but sometimes a period that singleness is a God-given gift. And actually, that was one of the radical things about the Christian faith when it exploded just after the, the Gospels, when we see in Acts the church exploding across the world. One of the radical teachings was you could be single. Because in ancient cultures, the done thing was that if your husband or wife died, you sought another marriage. Because there was no welfare state, for example. And actually, the only way you were ever going to be looked after would be as part of a family. And at the time, the widows particularly would be forced into new marriages by their families to make sure that they were looked after. One of the amazing things is we read in Acts chapter 6, and I know I'm diverting slightly, but I was, this is a real burden for me, and I think we need to, we need to look at it. In Acts chapter 6, we, we read that deacons were set up so that they could care for widows. In other words, they could care for widows so that they could remain single, so that they weren't forced into marriages because they could support themselves. And then there's the fact that actually some of the greatest examples in Christian history including the greatest example in Christian history, were single. Jesus Christ was the most fulfilled human being to ever walk this earth, and he was not married. That was a, an argument used by a man called Sam Albury. I would recommend reading some of his stuff about this issue in the recent Anglican debate about gay marriage. 
and homosexuality in the church. And he said, well, actually, singleness is an option. And he's, he, he is same-sex attracted. And he said, no, I am not going to believe the lie that I have to be in a relationship when my saviour wasn't. And he was the best and most perfect human being that ever walked this earth. And he stood up and said that in the debate. And we look at the Apostle Paul. Could the Apostle Paul have done what he did? Going around the world, preaching the gospel, suffering for Christ, if he'd had a family to think about back home? Would he have gone to those trouble spots if he'd had to take his wife with him? Put it this way, there are trouble spots I wouldn't go to because I wouldn't want to take Ruth. Because I care about her. But Paul didn't do that. He wasn't married and he was able to spread the gospel for that reason. We look at Corrie ten Boom in recent years, in, in, this, in the past century, who was an amazing testimony for Christ, who never married. She came from a family that hid Jews in the Second World War. But never married. I remember growing up a man called David Callard, who some of you may remember, who was not married. But David held together and was the glue of so many things so many movements of God in this area. And he was so pivotal and talked about so much in my hearing, in my family, that I realized that he was a great example of this. And I remember him to this day. I'm going to leave it there. And we're going to go back to this issue of marriage, because that's where I want to spend most of our time. But let's not forget that actually if you're single and you're sat here, God has something for you. And I don't want that to get lost in today's message. So let's go back. The Pharisees ask this question and they basically um, are trying to trap Jesus with legalism. They're trying to get him to fall into one of two camps. You see, this passage has a key theme and it is that Jesus is debunking lies and legalism about marriage. And there are two lies that the Pharisees showed themselves to believe or to even perpetuate in this passage. Um, the first one is that God allowed marriage so that men could divorce their wives easily. Sorry, allowed divorce so that men could get rid of their wives easily. And it comes from, their question actually comes from a passage in the Old Testament, and we're going to quickly turn there. It is in Deuteronomy in chapter 24, um, and it should be on the screen in just a moment. Um, and it goes like this, and I warn you, this passage may not be comfortable reading. It came from a patriarchal society, and we need to look into it more deeply to really judge it. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeased to, displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her out from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies, then he, her husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God, that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Wow. Now, we're going to break that passage down because understanding this is key to understanding what Jesus is saying. The first issue that has come out that the, that the Pharisees are discussing is an issue of the time. You see, divorce and marriage and relationships, just like today, were a hot topic. 
particularly legally. And actually, at the time, you had rabbis, teachers, who would teach the people about divorce. And the thing is, there were several different conflicting views at the time, and we have to understand this. There was a rabbi called Hillel, and he taught a very liberal view of Deuteronomy 24 that we've just read. In fact, he believed that anything indecent could be interpreted to say anything that he didn't like about her. I'll let that one sink in. Anything that he didn't like about her. In fact, I managed to find a quote from his writings. And in them, he writes, He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Now, our reaction, we might find that a little bit funny, but the moment we realized that that was actually the way in which people were thinking, we should be disgusted. But that is the question that they're asking. And it would appear from the question that they ask second, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce, that they are holding to his view? There was another view at the time by a Pharisee called Shammai. And he taught that actually, like Jesus said, it would only be in the case of sexual immorality. But they're both wrong. And Jesus goes further on that. That he taught that a man should divorce his wife if she was unfaithful. But the point being that Hillel's view of Deuteronomy opens up the human heart, doesn't it? And it tells us, it shows us the lie. And this is the lie. It is that it is okay to be a selfish spouse. You see, they were twisting scripture so that they could conform their wife or their choice of wife to their view of beauty, their view of compliance, their view of submission, their view of the perfect woman. Let's just take a moment to think about what it would have been like to be a wife in that relationship. Would you have ever been able to learn to love a person who was holding the big red button of divorce. You know, in, in countries now, we, we talk about the nuclear big red button, don't we? And those countries can never get on and, and coexist because there's always a big red button. And in this particular passage, the big red button is divorce. And these Pharisees are believing that this big red button can be legally pushed if marriage doesn't suit the man. You know, it's in our hearts, isn't it, that we are to be selfish. That is where the root of all sin, selfishness, a desire to put me first at the centre and everyone else on the outside. Jesus describes it as hard-heartedness. But Jesus is not having this. And he takes them back to the beginning and he, bring, he quotes Genesis 2.24. And he says, haven't you read, because Jesus often asked, answered a question with a question, usually to make people think, but it would have probably been quite annoying as well um, if you didn't agree with him. Haven't you read, he replied, that at, at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this tells us 
that Christ is debunking this myth that Christian marriage, that marriage in, in general, is something that can be entered into as a, an act of meeting your needs. You know, so often I find myself going, am I, is my attitude towards marriage today about my needs or is it about our needs? And so often I catch myself and I'm wrong. And what this scripture affirms to us is that marriage is to be one man, one woman, and an absolutely united commitment. Whether that be spiritually, emotionally, physically, intimately, it is to be a united covenant that no man, as Jesus says, no one should separate. Whether that be the people in the marriage or the people outside of the marriage pulling it apart. See, we all have a responsibility to make sure that marriages succeed. This passage teaches us that no one, it's not just the responsibility of those in the marriage, but perhaps the church family around to support and to love and to bless. But Jesus, why is it that Jesus is so defensive on this matter, why is it that he takes them back to the drawing board, as it were, because their views are wrong, and takes the time to say, no, you're asking the wrong question. You're quoting the wrong scripture. Why is it? And it's because that God is fiercely protective of marriage as an institution. God views marriage as more than just love. And Christian marriage, we're told, is actually to symbolize a relationship that is much greater than marriage. If we turn to Ephesians 5, we read the words of Paul. And Paul actually quotes Genesis 2.24, just as Jesus does. And if we read um, verse 25, first of all, we just dip in. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Now, Jesus, now at this point, Paul has stopped talking about husbands and has started talking about Jesus, but he's blended in very quick, very easily, hasn't he? And we read on in verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will believe his father and mother and be united to his wife. Once again, we have that quote of Genesis 2.24. And the two will be one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, Jesus is thoroughly defensive of, the, of, of marriage and marriage is staying together and supports the idea because he knows that marriage isn't about marriage. Marriage is actually going to be revealed to be a symbol of how Christ loves his church, loves his people. And that is why he is so defensive of it. You know, I've been, uh, I've been particularly affected by uh, a, a couple of stories on this. It can be said that marriage is a parable of permanence. Marriage is a parable of something that will continue to happen. I was particularly challenged by a book that Ruth and I read before we got married, um, and it's entitled, This Momentary Marriage, A Parable of Permanence. And it took me by surprise, it took me back, because I was entering marriage probably with the wrong view 
that marriage was about actually the fact that I loved Ruth, she loved me, and therefore we needed to get married. And the book quotes the words of a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a church pastor, a young church pastor, but he had, I will say, the misfortune to be pastoring in Nazi Germany. He read in the scriptures that what the Nazis were doing was wrong, no surprise there, and they locked him up for it and eventually hanged him. What you might not know is that he was engaged at the time, and he wrote something that uh, he wrote a sermon called a wedding sermon from a prison cell that he was going to preach if he ever got out he said this marriage is more than your love for each other in your love see only the he- in your love you only see the heaven of your own happiness but marriage but in marriage you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind your love is your own private possession but marriage is something is more than something personal it's a status an office just as it is a crown and not merely the will to rule that makes a king so it is marriage not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of god and man marriage is more than your love for one another you know that really shocked me that did the author of the book then goes on to comment that because Bonhoeffer never got married, he actually, what, what, he puts it in a lovely way, he skipped the shadow on the way to reality. You see, Bonhoeffer is in glory. And he knows what it's like to be united with Christ. He knows what that, prop, that union that marriage points to is like. And that is the most important thing. And I come back to my comments on singleness earlier. That marriage is not the be-all and end-all because it's a symbol. But those of us who are married should carry that symbol fiercely. We should see our marriages as a place where we can glorify God because that is what God intended for our marriages. We should see our marriages as a place where selfishness is not welcome. Where my own preferences are not going to rule. And at this point, it's very useful to take a little spiritual health check if we are married and think, where are those moments where you and I put our own needs first above that of our spouse? Because I guarantee we're imperfect and we'll find them. What are we going to do about them? That's the question. What are we going to do about them? And actually, this parable of permanence debunks the second myth because the Pharisees then come and they say to Jesus, why then? Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Do you ever sometimes twist a quote? Do you ever twist something that somebody said? Maybe just change one word. I find myself doing it. You know what? So did the Pharisees. Because what they read, what they say is, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? In other words, why did Moses command divorce then? And Jesus goes on and he describes that actually Moses permitted divorce. Now, the reason that divorce was permitted, if we go back to Deuteronomy 24, is because God is so protective of marriage. And at the time, men were jumping in and out of marriages. They were actually using the institution of marriage as a way of amassing wealth. Because at the time, your wife came with a dowry. And so, if you married someone, they were given their wedding present, which they then obviously shared with you. 
And then if you got divorced, actually you would lose that dowry. It would be returned. But if they then came, if that person then mar- married again, but perhaps the spouse died, the, pr- the first husband was going, you know what, it was nice to have that money. Maybe I'll just um, you know, turn on the old charm and we'll get married again. And then I'll have the dowry back. You, it might seem ludicrous, but that's what they were doing. And that's why Moses brought in this idea of a marriage certificate, of a divorce certificate, to protect women, because they were being exploited. That actually they had a certificate that said, no, you can't do that to me again. You see, divorce was actually not something to destroy marriage, but to maintain its credibility in the beginning when God allowed it. But it wasn't God's best. And Jesus highlights that actually there's only one situation in which he believes divorce should happen and we should take that as our belief as well whether it's comfortable or not and that is adultery unfaithfulness but notice he doesn't say that it should be your go-to and this is where the he debunks the lie of an uncommitted spouse that we can be in marriage nonchalantly we could be willing to step away from it And he replaces it with this idea that actually our commitment to our spouse can be so strong that we can hold to them even when they fail. Even when they are unfaithful. Because once again, this passage is a parable. Marriage, the whole institution, is a parable. A picture of Christ and the church. Have you or I ever been unfaithful to the teachings of God? I know personally that I have. I know that at times I put other things before him. That's called idolatry. God refers to that as unfaithfulness. But has God ceased to love me? No, I'm one of his children. I have accepted his offer of forgiveness. I have humbled myself. I have submitted to him and said, God, come into my life. I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not because of what I've done. It's a gift of grace. You see, if it was about what I've done, I'd never have had it in the first place. But the point being, it's a picture of Christ and the church. It's a picture of Christ and a member of the church. You see, we often worry that God is going to let us slip away. But the question is, can Christ lose a Christian? No. And so we see in this that Jesus is saying that marriage has to be a commitment, that marriage can even survive adultery if a spouse approaches it in a godly way, with mercy and grace. That actually it can end there, and that it's not illegal or a sin for it to end at that point of adultery. We must see what's here, and for some of us that's uncomfortable because... We've been brought up with this idea of divorce under no circumstances at all. Jesus is actually saying it it can happen, but it's not God's best. And it points us, again, as this parable of permanence, it points us to Christ. It points us to the fact that actually despite our unfaithfulness, if we are in that bond with him that the church is... 
He will not lose us. He is committed. He is the perfect spouse. If you are sat here this morning, your week has been terrible. You've realized that as a Christian, you have failed and that how on earth could God possibly keep you in his family? Here is your picture. The unfaithful spouse being clung onto by the perfect one. And that's what our marriages should model, isn't it? That is the challenge in my next 10, 20 years, 30 years, however long it is, that my marriage models that. If you're married here this morning, that's your challenge. That's our joy, that our marriage gets to be about something way more than just marriage, that we get to glorify God with it, that it gets to be a picture of something truly amazing. And just as I close, I want to bring to you a passage from Philippians chapter 2. You see, we're told that as this is a picture of Christ and the church, let's read the attitude of Christ towards the church, just as we close. Therefore, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. The, you know, if you want to write a marriage guide, those verses there would probably be a reasonable starting point. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I want to finish this morning by just putting to you some questions. First question. Have you bowed the knee? Are you part of that picture that marriage is showing? If not, Do you want to be? Because it's a pretty good picture. If not, why is it that you haven't said to Jesus Christ, I surrender, take what I have and make me yours? Why haven't you said that? What is the sin holding you back? What is the obstacle? And go and pray with someone about it. Because if you are in that picture then the glorious picture that we see tells us of a saviour who paid the ultimate price for us, who loved his people to the point where he died on a cross, who was the perfect spouse to the point where he would sacrifice himself and is committed to you. Why wouldn't we want that picture? Let's pray. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for marriage, but we thank you that it is not the be-all and end-all. We thank you that you had a greater picture, one of us, the church, and you, Christ, the perfect spouse. 
May we know that marriage serves a greater purpose in our hearts. May we know that marriage symbolizes your commitment to us and may we live with that understanding. And Lord, I do pray that actually if you have called anyone to singleness, that they would see it as a way, a perfectly legitimate way of honoring God, even if it's simply for a time. And may we as a church support marriages and support those who you have decided are going to be set apart for other things. May we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.